It's a real joy to be with you all this morning. I I neglected to mention this when I welcomed you in the beginning, but if we haven't met yet, my name is Charles Johnson. I'm one of the pastors here at Red Mountain, and I would just love to meet you. So please come up, say hi. Uh, I'd love to make your acquaintance. And And I want you to know what a joy, it feels like a privilege to share this space with each of you this morning as we celebrate together the truth that we claim that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. When we talk about the resurrection, what we're talking about is the foundational, really the essential building block on which our whole faith is built. If we were to remove it, everything would come crumbling down. I've heard people, I've heard people uh, compare it to like that loose thread on a sweater that if you pull it and remove it, the whole sweater kind of falls apart. Paul would agree with that. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead then we are, of all people, we Christians are of all people most to be pitied. That, uh, that we are still in our sins. And every exercise of our faith, from what we do in this room to what we do in the world, is all done in vain. But listen, if the resurrection of Jesus really happened, then it, re- it represents for us the pivot point of the history of the entire world. And and not just the story of the world, but your story too. If the resurrection is true, then resurrection life is the horizon line on which the trajectory of our lives bends toward. And that's the claim of this passage we're looking at this morning. John chapter 20, I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, the one who wrote that, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, 
Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh Lord Jesus, uh, I pray that what we do here this morning from our speaking to our listening uh, would all be in such a way that it would nourish us in faith, draw us nearer to you, trusting the resurrection and what it means for us. I pray that, um, pray that you would help me to speak in such a way that serves everybody here well, uh, that I would love them well, and that I would honor you with the words that I say. Let every word I say be in fidelity to your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So think for a minute. Uh, about a time that you were going to announce something important. Along the scale of uh, like maybe a wedding is coming up or the birth of a new baby or maybe a new job and you're moving somewhere, something that you're really excited about. And along that scale, you wanted to make an announcement. Uh, How would you go about that? Well, the first thing you would do is you would have a list of people that you would want to make sure heard about this good news, right? You would uh, have uh, uh, certain people that you wanted to make sure hear about it because what's behind an announcement of good news is always an invitation to joy. Uh, Your heart is experiencing something joyful and you are inviting other people to experience that joy as well. That's, that's what's behind all of that. And so whether it's grand or it's simple, an announcement is an invitation to joy. And, it, and it, you would also probably think about a picture or two you would want to include in this announcement, right? One that really captures the moment that you're trying to, to, to give to people. And, uh, and, and, and all of that, what you're doing is you're communicating a piece of your heart for what's happening, And when we look at this passage, what we see is God is making a grand announcement. And he's telling us something of his joy and inviting us to experience his joy as well. But we also see his heart. Why do I say that? Because if we look at this, like if we look at this passage, there is something about this announcement that just feels peculiar to us, doesn't it? Like if the the scope of an announcement given is usually commensurate with the scale of joy that it commands. Well, we only have a few people in this story. Other gospel accounts include a few others, but it really is just a handful of people. And when we look at this passage, many of them don't really understand what's going on. If you're announcing good news, you want to articulate something really clearly what's going on. But what we see in this passage is, is kind of confusing to the people that are there. But I would argue that in every word of this passage, of the story as we read it, communicates something of Jesus' heart for his people. I think you see it in the context of this announcement. I, 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 I think you see it in what the announcement reveals. 
And I think you see it in the responses to the announcement itself. The context, the revelation, and the response. First, the context. The story begins in the dark. Did you notice that? It starts with Mary walking in the dark. Now, whenever John uses darkness or includes darkness in his writing, it's often, it's literal, but it's always metaphor. It's symbolic's a better word for that. There's symbolism behind the darkness. And, and, And literally, Mary is walking in the dark. It's before the sun had risen. I'm imagining the, the sky just beginning to, to brighten up a bit from, uh, from darkness and she's walking in shadows toward the tomb after the Sabbath is over to go treat the body of Jesus. But the shadows that she is walking through betray a deeper shadow that follows her as she makes her way to the tomb. And of course, there's the shadow of grief because Mary loved Jesus dearly. There's been a lot of speculation about who Mary Magdalene is through the years. Much of it borders on ludicrous. But we, uh, we first meet Mary in Luke chapter 8. And she is healed by Jesus. And then she becomes a follower of Jesus. She loves him. And she follows him. She appears to be a woman of means. She generously made financial provision for Jesus' ministry. And then we don't see her again, even though she's probably in many of the stories of the Gospels. We don't see her again until we see her at the foot of the cross. That even as many of Jesus' disciples have scattered, there's Mary, one of the few faithful remnant, grieving the loss of the one that she had come to love. And so alongside this shadow of grief, we also see the shadow of confusion, And I say this because for as much as Mary loved Jesus, all of her hope was attached to him. Like her hope of a better life for herself and for her people, for her nation, for the world. And the idea of Jesus dying means hope has died. And it's all very confusing to her. And it's not that Jesus hadn't warned his disciples that this would happen. Three times he told his disciples, I am going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. And every time he announced his crucifixion, he also told them that he would rise from the dead. And so the problem isn't that that they weren't prepared for it. The problem was is that they had no categories for it. No one rises from the dead. There, There were many Jews that taught, many, I think maybe most Jews thought that there was a resurrection of the dead at the end of time. That was the way they understood resurrection. But but a resurrection in the middle of time. There are no categories for that. And this large confusion gives way to a lot of smaller confusions that you see riddled throughout the story. Like she shows up and, and nothing she sees makes sense to her. It, there's a, there's a, a stone is rolled away from the tomb. That tomb was purchased by a wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea. And the, the wealthier tombs had large stones that were rolled in front of it that, that guarded it. Because grave robbing was a crime that was a problem at that time. And so when she shows up, she sees this large stone that would take 
two or three or more men to be able to roll away. And that tomb was supposed to be guarded by by Roman guards who would be executed if they were derelict of their duty. But where are the guards? And and then as well, when she looks in, she sees grave clothes there. Like, what what are the grave clothes doing there? If the body was indeed stolen, they wouldn't take the grave clothes off the body and then steal it. Those were linen cloths that were loaded up with spices that were meant to preserve the body and keep it from decay. And, uh, and, and certainly, they're also really valuable. So if you were stealing it, certainly you wouldn't leave those there. Like no, None of this makes any sense. And so you see grief, and you see deep confusion. And what I want you to see when you look at this context is that that is who Jesus announces the truth of his resurrection to. Those who are confused about the world and those who feel they're lost deeply. You see, the heart of Jesus is for those people. You also see the heart of Jesus and the way he reveals himself to them. And look at the interaction Jesus has with Mary. I mean, isn't it wonderful? Uh, It's hard not to love Mary. I I would say it's impossible not to love Mary. I mean, everywhere we see her, she is altogether this admirable person. And and, and this is set in contrast to what Peter and what it says Peter and John do. You see Peter and John show up at the tomb. I don't even know if they said anything. Like maybe they, but they show up and it's kind of like they're looking around and they're thinking and then they just walk off. Like, you know. Like, what's going on here? But Mary shows up, and she is feeling this deeply. And everywhere she goes, she's crying. She's filled with this compassion. And yet, she has too small of a view of Jesus. Like she, like many of us, like all of us are so prone to do, she understood Jesus. And so when she goes to the tomb, she's fully expecting, like you and I would, she's fully expecting to find a dead Jesus. And her understanding, just like us, how gentle Jesus is with Mary. I mean, he is so gentle with her. The first thing he says is, what does he say? He says, why are you crying? And who are you looking for? What's he doing? He is asking questions he has answers to. Now, now, and that's profound. Many of you know this. The counselors in this room, there are a few of you. I see you. You can fact check me on this. Uh, but they are like professionally trained to do this. When you are with somebody in deep distress, what do you do? Do you answer all the questions they're asking? That, that, can, that can feel like discarding the concerns. No, what you do is you start drawing them out. And you ask good questions. Because what you're saying is make your concerns my concerns. I, I, I am with you. And so here's Jesus who has all the robust answers to the questions that Mary is asking. But he is drawing her out and he's coming alongside her. He is exceedingly gentle and merciful with her. It's wonderful to see. And that's why his revelation... 
to Mary is intensely personal. How does Mary recognize who who Jesus is? I don't think you can read that and not see it as anything but an intimate moment. How, How does she recognize who Jesus is when he says her name? Mary. My sheep know my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. As soon as Mary hears her name, it's like a 180 is done in her heart. She moves from despair to joy in a flash. It's like the interior of her person comes alive again, and her spirit is filled, and she goes to him, and she holds him. And there's some question about what that actually looked like. Uh, did some, some think, just based on looking at other gospel accounts, there's an account of disciples when they see Jesus falling at his feet. And maybe she fell at his feet and was holding on to his feet. Or maybe she just reacted and went and grabbed, it's physical. She went and grabbed him and hugged his glorious body. Whatever it was, it's giving us this picture of this physical, personal interaction that, that Mary has with Jesus. I like to imagine that, he was, uh, that she was squeezing him so hard he couldn't breathe. He says, don't cling to me. And obviously he had a point to make when he said that, but it was almost like you're squeezing me so tight. She didn't want to let go because he was alive again. And one of the things this passage is teaching us is that when Jesus comes to his people, he comes with a heart of mercy and he comes with a desire for intimacy. And it's hard to put into words just how badly we crave relationships like this. Like we can spend our whole lives longing for relationships like this. Because what is this? This is is what it's like to be fully known And fully loved. It's the definition of intimacy. That Jesus knew all of Mary and yet he still loved her. And many of our friendships don't look that way. In fact, and and there's a place for boundaries and a capacity that someone can have relationships in their life. But many of our relationships look like I want to be beneficial to you and you want to be beneficial to me. So we, so we disguise the parts of us that are hard to bear. And we look for the parts uh, in others that are attractive. And, and so we can hide from each other and distance is created if we get too close. Many of our relationships look like that. And there might be good reason for that. But listen, if, there is a cat, if that is the category through which we understand what a relationship with Jesus is, Jesus is undoing this completely in this passage. He is telling us that when I come into relationship with you, you become someone that the God of the universe fully knows and yet fully loves. That you are now in an intimate relationship with the one who is all-powerful. That he is both transcendent, whose words create the world, and yet he is eminently loving and near to you. That's who Jesus is when you come into a relationship with you. And listen, he is under no illusion about who you are. He knows better than the rest of us 
what the weight of our sin looks like. There are no questions in his mind. He bore the weight of the sin as he made his way to the cross. And yet his love runs so deeply that frail hearts and hard hearts and everything in between find their healing in him. What you are looking at, when you are looking at Mary, you are looking at a broken heart that was healed by Jesus. His mercy is more than a match for my heart, which wonders to feel his own hardness depart. If you belong to Jesus by faith, if you look at this resurrection story and believe it's true, what I want you to see is you are looking at somebody who knows you and yet loves you deeply, and there is no part of you that is exempt or hidden from the love of Christ given to you. And the question then becomes, how do you respond to this? Like, where are you on this? The offer behind the resurrection is quite a profound one. Like many religions, when you know the kind of the offer behind faith or the the practice of faith in a certain way, like there's an ethereal type heaven is kind of immaterial, often. But but the offer of Christ, demonstrated in a physical resurrection of his physical body, is something concrete and real given to you. It's the idea of a new glorious body given to you, of life in a country that you belong in, with family that you love, and flourishing where work won't be toil. That the promise of the resurrection is the stamp on this promise of a future real physical life that's given to you. How do you respond to that? Do you believe it happened? In this passage, what we see uh, in Peter and John is, is an example of, of, uh, of two responses, that, two responses to what they see when they get to the tomb. Uh, Mary uh, is unlike them. Mary actually experiences Jesus face to face. She's the one he came to. But Peter and John are much more like us. They have to deal with the physical evidence and uh, and a wit- eyewitness testimony they hear in this moment. And how do they respond? And it's really interesting to see differences in the way that they respond to this. John gets there first. He, they hear the news. He gets there first. Uh, looks like Peter and John are racing, and John is recording in the Bible that he beat Peter to the tomb. And that was probably because he was younger. That was probably why uh, he beat him to the tomb. But we see that when he gets to the tomb, he he doesn't go in immediately. He stoops, he looks in, he doesn't go in immediately. And uh, and then when Peter joins him in verse 8, it says that John went into the tomb, he saw and he believed, okay? He saw and he believed. That means he believed in the resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead. And the Greek word that's used there is really interesting. It used the, uses the word uh, orao, which means he saw with understanding. And that's all it took. This, this idea that he saw, he understood what happened, 
and he believed. That seeing and believing, that was John's response. And then in Peter, Peter shows up, and the word that's used there to describe Saul is a really interesting one. You'll probably recognize it. It's theoreo. Uh, it's the same word you get the word theorize from. It means uh, to observe intently looking for an explanation. It's kind of a scientific word. What it does is it talks about Peter begins exercising rational thought. What, what John is saying there is that Peter entered the tomb like a detective. And he walked in and he began like looking around and trying to piece together what was so confusing. He's, he sees the stone and the grave clothes and the missing uh, guards. And he's like, okay, okay, what happened here? And he's just trying to piece it all together and figure it all out. And, and there's not a, a recording in this passage about where Peter, where John says he believed when he walked away. John doesn't make mention about where Peter is and how he understood the situation. It just says that he left. They just left and went to their separate homes. But Luke tells us that Peter goes home wondering to himself what had happened. And some believe, some believe that maybe Peter knew in that moment and some believe it came to him later when he met Jesus. But here's the point. Neither of them go to the tomb expecting to find that Jesus had risen from the dead, but both of them left with the seeds of faith that would later go into a strong proclamation of Jesus. Like their whole lives now, after this moment, become completely devoted to telling the world about the risen Lord. And so I want to ask you this. Where are you with this? Do you believe this is true? Or do you not? The Christian witness would say to you that this is a matter of life and death. Where you fall on this issue. At the end of this chapter, John will say, and he's writing really about the whole book, but he's certainly writing about this scene. He says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. And so I want to speak to two different people here right now. Uh, I want to speak to the unconvinced. Uh, There are probably some of you here, and I I want you to know you are welcome in this place. I love that you're here. Uh, But I want to ask you to wrestle with this. If 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 maybe you have, maybe you haven't. But I want to challenge you to wrestle with this issue of if it's possible or even likely or verifiable that Jesus really rose from the dead. This is a critical issue. And some of you know the name Charles Colson. Some of you know him as Chuck Colson. He was a political aide to President Nixon in the early 70s. He was one of the Watergate Seven who, who uh, was... Um, indicted and later landed in jail because of his involvement in the Watergate scandal. But sometime between when Watergate happened and when he went to jail like a year or two later, he actually became a Christian. And he says that it was his involvement with Watergate that actually helped him believe the truth of the resurrection. This is what he said. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. 
Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. If you're unconvinced of this, I want to challenge you to tug on this. I would love to be friends with you and and talk to you about it. And I promise we will dignify your questions and we will work with you as we investigate it together. But this this one's important. I want to challenge you to think about it. And maybe I'm saying this more to myself than to you, but um, to those of you who do believe, like we trust the history we, uh, we f- but we feel our faith, the strength of our faith, wax and wane as we endure life. Like every day, there are some ups and downs. Uh, I want to give you this. This was a comfort to me. It was a story. I found a story that a man named Don Carson told. He's a pastor and a scholar, um, one of my heroes. Uh, and he said this that I'd just like to share with you. And I'm going to close by sharing this with you. But he was talking about the assurance of our faith. Uh, And he was talking to us that as we feel our faith intensify and de-intensify, as we feel it, it really compels us and at times it feels weak, right? That's what he was speaking about. And he told a fable that was set in... uh, in Egypt, amongst the Israelites, when they were, in a pre- they were enslaved in Egypt during the time of the ten plagues. And so God is moving in dramatic ways against their oppressors. And uh, the night of the tenth plague, he, he is about to liberate uh, Israel forever, but the angel of death is coming to pass over them. And the two men are Fred and George, because those are perfect Jewish names. And Fred says to George, man, are you nervous about tonight? And George says, what, what is there to be nervous about? You, you did everything God told you to do, didn't you? Like you took the blood of the lamb and you, 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 you dobbed it on the, the doorposts and you put the blood of the lamb on the lintel, Right? You, 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 you've prepared the Passover meal. You're packed and ready to go. Are you going to eat the whole thing uh, before you go? Like you've done what God told you to do. What is there to be nervous about? And Fred says, well, a lot of weird things have been happening around here. Like flies and locusts and livestock dying, a river turned into blood. Like it's weird. And now death is coming tonight. And George says, I trust the promises of God. And of course, which one lost their son that night? Neither of them did. Because death does not pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. But Three days before this happened, Jesus shed his blood and he said, it is finished. It's over. That he has dealt with your sin and he has won you to himself. 
And he knows how weak we are at times and how strong we are at times. But he has made you his people. And when he comes to you with mercy, he doesn't take it back. But he comes to you because he loves you and wins you to himself. And his blood speaks. It speaks now. And it speaks forever. And it says it is enough. Jesus' blood speaks. And it says it is enough for you. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, dear Jesus, I pray that you would give us the sense of wonder that these things are true. Help us to trust it, but give us the sense of wonder at just what you did and the links that you went to to win us to yourself. And I ask, Father, that you would be at work in hearts in this very moment, across the room, calling your people to yourself, telling us of your love for us, reassuring us of your promises, and giving us strength for the day and bright hope for tomorrow. I ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.